While you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And I want to start with, I guess it's kind of a fairy tale, a classic fairy tale sort of setting, if you will. Imagine a a poor widow, and she receives uh, an invitation from the king to come to an elaborate ball at the castle. This is not like Cinderella, but you can imagine this. There she is. She's received this beautiful invitation, and along with it is a, a box, and in the box is a beautiful dress. And in the box is also an envelope filled with some money, everything that she needs to prepare and get ready to come to this beautiful banquet at the castle. On the way to the ball, as she's put on this beautiful dress, she sees a jewelry store. And there in the jewelry store, she she sees pieces of jewelry and she thinks, that that's what I need to make the outfit complete and the king gave me some money so I will get this jewelry for myself and now my outfit will be complete and she spends all the money the king sent on some jewelry. She passes a scarf shop. She says, oh, that scarf will go beautifully with this dress. I, I, I need to have that scarf. So she goes in and, and she offers to come in and work every evening to pay off this scarf if they will let her wear the scarf to the ball, and so she gets the scarf. Well, she goes to another shop, and they're selling a beautiful fur coat, and she just she knows that will make the outfit complete. And so she goes in. She has no more money, but she says, you know, she says to the shop owner, my kids will come and work for you for a month if you will let me wear this beautiful coat to the ball. So now here she is completely out of money, She's feeling weighed down with the jewelry. She's hot from the scarf and the coat. She's feeling guilty now because she's committed her children as well as all of her evenings. But at least she thinks, I think I look good for the ball. And then she joins up with some friends, some other ladies going to the ball. And and they're dressed in really fancy, ornate dresses, not like the, the pretty simple dress that the king gave her. And they have elaborate makeup. And they kind of look at her and welcome her, but, but sort of look at her in a judgmental way. And she realizes that she looks different than them. And so she stops at a store. She sells her coat, her scarf, and her jewelry. And she gets expensive makeup and puts it on. And they say, wow, now you look so much better, but, but your dress... Could we do something about that dress? So she goes into another shop and takes the extra money from the things she sold and she buys a new dress. She sells the dress that the king gave her. Of course, it costs more. So she has to take out a loan, goes into further debt. But at least she'll look good. And so she arrives at the ball and the king greets her at the door. And he smiles warmly and asks how she's doing. And she says, I'm, I'm doing well, but you know, King, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. I, I don't really have enough money for food. And he looks at her, looks at her dress, and looks at her friends. And he says, I knew you were struggling. I really wanted you to come to the ball, so I sent you the dress. 
so you'd be prepared. And I knew you were struggling with food, so I sent you money so you would have food to feed your children. I gave you everything you needed. What happened to all I gave you? And she said, well, it was beautiful and I'm so appreciative, but I really, I wanted something else. I I thought this would make me happy. I I wanted to buy some other things, but then that didn't really make me happy. So then I thought, well, I want to please my friends and I wanted to look like them. And she said, and now I'm in debt and I'm in trouble. And he asks her, well, do you feel any better? She said, no, actually. The dress is itchy and uncomfortable. The makeup feels terrible. She feels a heavy weight of guilt because of all the poor decisions she's made over the past couple hours. So what happened? The king gave her everything that she needed, both to attend the ball and to help her family to pay for the food. And then she decided she wanted something different. And her first idea was to please herself. If I get these things, I will be happy. Well, that didn't work out so well. Then she decided to please her friends. If I do these things, I will fit in and they will be happy with me. Today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, we need to look at our purpose. And I've called the sermon a higher purpose. And I want each one of us to ask the question, who are we trying to please? Who are we living to please? And I know some of you will be like, oh, pastor, I don't live to please anyone. I just do what I want. Well, then that's your answer. If we live to do what we want, then the answer to the question, who are you living to please, is you're living to please yourself. And even in trying to please ourselves, and we think we're so independently minded, so often we're doing so in such a way that just falls in line with how everybody else is doing it. I was a youth pastor for nine years. I don't know if you remember the goth phase. Anybody remember the goth phase of youth? The youth went through this big goth phase. Dark makeup, dark clothes, you know, spike things. Man, I would talk to these kids. They were great kids. Some of them super nice. I would talk to them. They're just like, yeah, I just, I'm a rebel. I'm an individual. I don't want to be like anybody else. And I'm looking around at all their friends and going, okay, because you look just like them. And isn't that the lie of living to please ourselves? Well, I'm doing what I want, but you're doing it just like everybody else. Because the pressure to live to please others and the pressure to live to please ourselves is extreme in our world. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, and look at who we are supposed to live to please. And I want to start generally, and then we're going to get more specific. And I'm going to tell you, this gets tough. We are going to talk about some things today that put us as Christians completely out of line with our culture. This is hard, but this is the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed, it is from God, inspired by him, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 This means we are going to submit ourselves to the word of God and what it says. So let's start. He he starts by talking about 
who we are to live to please. Says in verses 1 and 2, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, Paul's writing to this church in Thessalonica, says, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now, the NIV starts this passage with, as for other matters. It sounds like he's switching topics. That's a kind of a bad translation, unfortunately. It's more like, now, furthermore. He's going to talk about two main topics in verses 3 through 12, and they're the exact same two topics that he prayed about at the end of chapter 3 that we talked about last week. Holy living and loving one another. So he's not switching topics. He's continuing on with what he's already talked about. But his point is, he's going to get specific. He's going to take it right to their level and how they're living and what they're dealing with. We know from this book that Paul was concerned about the Thessalonian church. He planted the church, preached the gospel, but he had to leave. All this persecution broke out. He had to get out of town. And he was worried about them. And now he's received news from his friend Timothy about how the church is doing. And they're doing great. They're holding on to the gospel. They're sharing the gospel with others. They're full of love for one another. But there's a few things they're struggling with. And that's, I think, what the NIV is trying to get to with as for other matters. Paul's going to get specific about some of the things they're struggling with. But he's already introduced this. So let's look at what he wants them to focus on. He starts by saying, we instructed you. So Paul, when he was there, taught them certain things. In the brief moments he had with them, there were some things he taught them he thought was important enough to spend time on them. And now look at how important he considers these things. He says, we ask you and urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. We'll get to what this is. But I want you to understand how important this is to Paul. He says, I talked to you about this. Sounds like a parent with a kid, right? We talked about this. I've told you this before. So he says, this is important enough that I taught you this. And now I'm telling you, keep going in this. More and more. This is actually really strong language. We urge you in the Lord. That's under the authority of Jesus Christ. We are pushing you to keep going in this direction. Clearly, Paul believes that what he's writing about here is really important. So what is it? At the middle of verse 1, he says, We instructed you how to live in order to please God. In order to please God. This is a complete redefinition of the purpose of our life. It is away from pleasing ourselves, away from pleasing others. Paul says, I have taught you and I'm urging you more and more to live in such a way to please God. I mentioned in an earlier sermon when Paul talked about this, that the idea of pleasing is not just, you know, like a a brooding God up there, you know, just looking to zap you because you're getting in trouble and just trying to stay out of trouble. It's more like a, a soldier under a commander. And the commander issues orders. And how are you going to please that commander? Well, do what he says. And when the soldier fulfills their orders with skill and and urgency and they do a good job, the commander is pleased because that's what the commander wanted. And God has given us his will, his purpose, his word. And so to live to please God is is not this hand-wringing, oh, I hope he accepts me and loves me. It's God says to do this. I'm going to do it. 
I'm going to live this out in my life. Now, a fundamental question for each one of us is the question, what is my purpose in life? What is my goal? Throughout the history of humanity, there have been major trends. And in older, kind of pre-modern, more archaic times, there was an emphasis on serving the community, serving the family, serving the culture. Sometimes it was serving the religion, the god or goddess of that area. There was this very external, my purpose is outside of myself. I'm to serve something else. Over time, culture began to shift. And the location of our purpose moved from outside of ourselves to inside of ourselves, to serving our own ideas and our own happiness. I've said this before, but I think the greatest example of this is in the Declaration of the Independence of the United States of America. The Founding Fathers wrote, we hold these truths to be self-evident. They prove themselves. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, rights that cannot be taken away. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, I, I know as Americans, we are pleased with this. This is great, like founding of our country, we have freedom. But this was putting into words a shift in culture that was going on, had been going on, and has continued to go on from I serve others for the good of others to others serve me. You and my country has to protect my happiness. It's a fundamental different way of looking at our purpose. And it sounds great. Well, shouldn't we all be happy? Shouldn't we all be free? Shouldn't we all be able to get what we want? It sounds so great, but it doesn't work at all. Seeking to please the self will always come at the cost of other people. Always. And we are seeing this more and more in our culture. As more and more people focus on their own desires, their own wants, their own freedom, their own happiness, other people get hurt more and more. But scripture teaches that we have a higher and better purpose. And Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.1 that they are to live in order to please God. Think about this for a moment. God is our creator. He created this world and everything in it so that we could be with him. He could provide for our every need. God is the one that even when we rebelled, he sought us out. The Old Testament is the testimony of God seeking out sinful humanity to reestablish a relationship. They didn't deserve it. We don't deserve it. He came to them to be with them, to love them, to call them into relationship. God is the one who sent his son to die in the cross and, or die on the cross in our place. He is the one that did that. God is the one who adopts us through his son, Jesus Christ, and shares everything with us. God is the one who is working out his perfect plan to do away with sin, remake all creation so that everyone who is saved by Jesus Christ can be with him forever. That's what God is doing. That's his desire for us. 
So, so when we're called to live to please him, this is not some ogre up in heaven ready to smash us with a hammer when we're in trouble. This is someone who loves us, who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows what will actually make us happy, what we actually long for, and what will actually satisfy us. And that's why we are called to live to please him. We talk as a church, rightfully so, a lot about being a Christian. It's important. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to be loved by God, accepted through Jesus Christ, shown grace and mercy. Absolutely, all that is true. But it also means that we have been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is not to just do whatever we want and get whatever we want or whatever we think will make us happy. We have a higher purpose. Our purpose is to live to please God. And I come back again to how important this was to Paul. He instructed them in this. He's urging them to keep doing this, keep growing in this. This subject matters. As Christians, we've got to understand that we are to live not for ourselves, but to please God. That is a complete change of attitude and direction in our life. So what does this look like? How do we do this? Well, we are to live a changed life. Living to please God means living a changed life. We can't just go on the way we were, as if nothing has happened. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 through 8. And I want to start, here's where I want to start broadly, and then we'll get more narrow. Because he's going to get into some very difficult stuff. But look at the beginning of verse 3. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. God's will that you should be sanctified. That means to be made holy. We'll come back to that in a second. Skip down to verses 7 and 8. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. We talked last week, so I'm not going to go too much into detail about this, but we talked about God is holy. God is the perfect example and the definition of what it means to be holy. A a technical example of holiness is something that is set apart for uh, a purpose. I use the example of like a scalpel for a surgeon. You you wouldn't walk into the the surgery room and grab that scalpel, scalpel and take it out to cut your sandwich for lunch and then take it back in and put there. No, it's It's set apart for a purpose. It needs to be clean for the operating room. It's not to cut your sandwich and butter it with. You can't do that. God is absolutely holy. And we talked about how uh, in Isaiah and then again in Revelation, we have these scenes in the throne room of heaven and these angelic beings are surrounding God and they're crying out over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is absolutely holy. And we have this interesting development throughout Scripture where God in His holiness comes to be with His people who are not holy. They are sinful. And He comes to Abraham and then to Moses and the Israelites and He tells them to set up this building. It starts as a tent, the tabernacle. And then it turns into a more permanent settling, a more permanent building when they settle in the promised land, the temple. 
And here God's holy presence is going to live with them. And throughout the Old Testament, all the commands, all the laws, all the instructions, all center around this fact. They were to obey these things, live these things, not just because it was a good thing to do or because it would make them blessed and and wealthy or something. They were to do these things because a holy God lived among them and they were to be different. God's holiness in his presence with us makes us different. And then there was a prophecy that comes up several times. I'll just look at one. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 to 27. The prophet Ezekiel writes, well, God speaks through him and says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And he says there's a change that's going to come, a way that God works that is going to be different, and it's going to be from the inside out. And then look at the next verse. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. We have to see this from their perspective. They set up the temple. They set up the tabernacle. They did a bunch of sacrifices. And then what happens? The glory of the Lord in obvious, unmistakable ways, the glory of the Lord descends and fills that building, fills that structure so that every Israelite could answer the question, where is my God? He's right there. He is living among us. And through Ezekiel and many others that we could look at, we have this prophecy that one day the presence of the Lord will not be over there in a building. It will not be here in a room. It will be here in the hearts of each person. And we find out through scripture that the way that happens is because Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we can be purified from our sins. And then he rises from the dead so that we can have new life. And God puts his presence, his spirit in us. Now, if in the Old Testament, God's presence among them in the temple or the tabernacle made them different and called them to live a holy life, how much more so today with God's spirit in us should we live a holy life? And we see this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14, gives this incredible truth. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Friends, if you're a Christian... If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're believing in Him for your salvation. This is the promise of the Word of God. God's holy presence, His Holy Spirit is at work in you, dwelling in you. You are a temple. You are a tabernacle. Throughout the ages, people that went to church often called the church the house of God. That's not true. Oh, it's right that the church is the house of God, but the church is not a building. The church is the people. It's the people saved by Jesus Christ that are the house of God. So if we go back to 1 Thessalonians 4.8, look how important this is. Paul says, therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, 
the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. To refuse to live a holy life, to refuse to submit to God's word, his direction, his priorities, and to reject the idea that God gives us his spirit that changes us and makes us holy is to reject God himself. We are called to be different. I love talking about mercy and grace that we find through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is so much encouragement in the truth that anyone can become and be saved by Jesus Christ because he paid the price for us. But sometimes we miss this other part as well, that when we are saved, we are made different. And we are called to live different. And if you're a little bit uncomfortable now, you're about to get a lot more uncomfortable because Paul gets very specific. Let me read all of 3 through 8, and then we'll dig into it. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his holy spirit. Paul knew then for the people in Thessalonica that there was a major issue that they were struggling with and they were struggling to apply the concept of holiness and holy living to a particular area of their life and their culture. And it is the same area that our culture and our world today still struggles with. And that was the area of human sexuality. And he says, this is so important that if they're going to understand what it means to live to please God, they have to understand what human sexuality is and specifically what it means to avoid sexual immorality. So what is that? Please hear me, parents. I know you might have kids here. We're, We're going to try to keep this as PG as possible. But we do need to talk about this because the definition of that phrase, sexual immorality, is under attack today. And and the common definition by many who claim to be Christians in our world today is not in line with Scripture. So we want to go to Scripture and understand what it is. And the best way to understand what human sexuality or the opposite, the contrary view, sexual immorality is, is to understand what God's standard is. Because literally the phrase uh, uh, sexual immorality is anything that is out of line with God's standard in this area. That's what it means. It's a very broad category. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read that God created all things. We go to Genesis 1.27, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. The unmistakable truth of scripture is that God himself has ordained human gender. It is not up to be redefined. 
Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, God creates Eve and says this is why a man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife and they will become one flesh. God creates human sexuality, which is to be between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. All of these things are determined by God, created by God, defined by God before any of us and any of the modern world came onto the scene. So, we have God's standards for human sexual sexuality. So, sexual immorality is anything contrary to those standards. Sex outside the bounds of marriage is biblically sexual immorality. Sexual desiring of someone who is not your husband or wife, such as in pornography, is sexual immorality. Changing and redefining human or personal sexuality in a way that conflicts with God's standard is sexual immorality. Considering gender fluid and changing gender and the idea that human relationships and gender are up to us to determine rather than being created by God is sexual immorality. And Paul says that we are to avoid sexual immorality. That's not like, hey, just try to stay away from it. He's saying, go completely the opposite direction. Because our goal in life is not to please ourselves and not to please our culture. And friends, it's getting real hard to be Christians in the world today. Because we used to be kind of tacitly accepted in an awkward sort of way. Now we are judged as being immoral for the very things I just stated. And you know what? They faced the same thing in Paul's day. And the church grew, and people were saved, and the gospel spread. The church is going to be just fine. We're going to hold on to the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have a whole world that is on their way to a ball, desperately trying to fill things in their own life and find happiness, and many of them are coming to the conclusion it doesn't work, and we have something to offer them. The truth of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, and it's important to understand this because you might meet someone like this, Sometimes people who claim to be Christians will say that sexual immorality in Scripture is simply breaking a committed sexual relationship. And then what they're saying is that according to Scripture, sexual immorality is just adultery. So as long as you are in a committed relationship, it's not sexual immorality. And this is used often, for some of you, this is the first time you're hearing this, but this is used often to defend many different ways of having human sexual relationships as long as you're faithful. It's what they say. This is simply not true. That is absolutely not what Scripture says. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says in verse 4, we are to control our own body. Verse 5, we are not to be like the pagans. He's talking about their culture. And in their culture homosexuality was acceptable. Adultery in many forms was even acceptable. He is pointing to all of it and saying, you cannot be like them. There is no wiggle room here to come in line with our culture and redefine what God is saying. 
We are to avoid sexual immorality. And Paul says, verse 8, makes it very clear. And this is hard. But look at what he says in Scripture. Anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. We've been, if you're a Christian, you've been saved by Jesus Christ. He's paid the price for you. He's offered you new life. The Holy Spirit is within us, changing us, making us new according to God's standard. If we hold on to the world's standards and say, well, I can't do that, what we're saying is the gospel's not true. Jesus didn't really change me. The Holy Spirit's not really at work within me. That's what we're saying. But God's Spirit is within us, working within us to make us holy. We have a new direction and a new purpose, not living for ourselves, not living to please the world, but living to please God who created us and who was making us holy. There's one other area briefly that Paul talks about. We've talked about it many times, but he talks about this call to love one another. It says in verses 9 through 12, Now about your love for one another, We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all God's people, or all God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody." This is a no-brainer to talk about Christians being called to love people. That should not be new to any of us. We are called to love people. And I wanted to keep these two things together because as we looked at last week in his prayer, Paul keeps together the idea of living a holy life and loving people. These are not contrary. Holiness does not mean beating somebody up for being different. And love does not mean accepting what anybody else wants and saying it's okay. Holiness is holding on to God's standard. Love is treating people with love and respect, even if they disagree with us. And we are called to keep these two things, these very difficult things, together. And Paul says these Thessalonians are a great example of that. We've seen that before. He praises them. But look at what he says in verse 11. He says to them, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. That's interesting, and I I referred to this when we started this sermon series. What am I calling the sermon series? It's not up there. Here's your pop quiz. What's this? Faith out loud, right? And we talked from the very beginning that, that Paul had praised them. They were living their faith out loud, and he's encouraging them and challenging them. Live your faith out loud. Don't be closet Christians. Don't hide and, and say, well, you know, I'm afraid to talk about Jesus. He says, live it out loud. And then we get to this verse. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. What in the world is going on here? There are two possibilities that I've seen how scholars interpret this, and I think both are helpful. Paul, later in this book, he's going to talk, in fact, the next section, he's going to talk about the return of Christ. And from what we can tell, it seems like some people in the Thessalonian church were saying, well, God's coming back. Christ is coming back. So 
I don't need to work to provide for my family anymore because he's coming back. And then they were going to the church and saying, I'm so trusting in Christ's return, you have to feed me. You have to provide for me. And, and one way of understanding this is Paul saying, no, that's, that's not it. Get back to work. Be faithful with the time that you have. There is another thing that it's possible, and he might be applying this to both. I don't know, but I think this is really helpful. In their culture, there's an understanding of an issue of patronage. Patronage was a system of being supported by somebody wealthy, somebody more powerful than you, usually by working for them, serving them, or representing them publicly. And so they would live their lives saying, if I can kind of kiss up to so-and-so, they could be my patron and they will provide for me. Well, as you can imagine, Christian morals, Christian values would often conflict with this. This was a way to get financial gain, political power and influence, popularity and fame in their culture. And Paul says, don't do that. He says, live a quiet life. In this culture, that phrase, live a quiet life, meant pull back from the arguments that are going on in the public square. Don't get involved in them. That's not for you. Paul is emphasizing that we are not to gain influence by using the world's ways. Especially because by doing that, we often have to give up our Christian morals and values and betray the holiness that we're called to in order to participate in those arguments that we shouldn't be in in the first place. We need to take this to heart today. And this is going to sound weird out of everything I just said about human sexuality. What I'm not saying is go out there and scream and yell at everybody that disagrees with us and tell them how stupid they are. That's absolutely not the loving answer. And it seems like Christians have like these two options. Either I believe in what the Bible says about human sexuality and I just am rude and obnoxious to everybody in the world. Or others say I'm going to let go of what the Bible says and then I'll love everybody in the world. Paul is calling them to this difficult middle ground. Hold on to the truth that God says and treat people with love. Don't get involved in the arguments. That doesn't mean don't fail to stand up for what you believe or if somebody asks, tell them. But we're not looking for a fight. We are looking to represent Jesus Christ. We don't go out stirring up trouble and arguments in the world. We are going out to represent Jesus Christ. We are called to live our faith out loud. Not to hide our faith or our Christian beliefs or actions, but we are to do so in such a way that we live a loving and quiet life. A way that is not argument or trying to gain influence in this world. Not beating others up, but rather loving them and demonstrating Christ to them. This is the call to live, to please God. And it is hard. Our personal holiness, especially in the area of human sexuality, and our living to love others should both come from our higher purpose of living to please God. We have been issued an invitation by our King.
and he has done everything necessary and possible that we might come and be in his presence. He sent his son to die in our place. He's put his spirit in us, making us holy from the inside out. And we are walking on our way to eternity with Christ. And along the way, there's a lot of windows and shops that are offering other things. And we need to be able to say no to those things because we are so captivated by Christ. We need to be careful of the distractions that promise to please us and fulfill us. And we need to be aware of the fact that there are many falling into those traps that need to see that there is another way. They need to see Christ at work in us. So let me leave you with a question today. Who are you living to please? Be honest with yourself. Are we living to please ourselves? Are we caught up with pleasing others or the world around us? Or are we recognizing and accepting that God loves us, created us, saved us through His Son, Jesus Christ, is at work in us, making us holy, that we redefine our purpose in life and say, I will live to please the God who created me and loves me. Let us pray. Father, we cannot do this ourselves. I love that song, Yet Not I, But Christ in Me. We labor on. We struggle to live out the commands of your word. But what we're struggling to do is to trust what you are already at work doing in us. You call us to be loving and we see people we struggle to love. But we will act in faith that you are making us loving. You call us to purity, but we struggle in the area of purity. But we will act in faith, trusting that you are at work in us. And Father, there are times that the world will laugh at us, mock us, or even condemn us for trusting in these things that are out of line and out of sync with our popular culture. But we will trust you that you are at work in us and that your son, Jesus Christ, is coming back. And those things that seem so upside down and backwards in this world today to a world that wants to mock us will be seen to be truth, the truth of your holy word and your holy plan that has never failed. Help us, Father, to live to please you in every area of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.